0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Schwartz School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Fine Professor Jeremy Siegel author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is out and available wherever books are sold, so get a copy. Uh, I am broadcasting actually live from Wharton's campus today. I am live in the studio at, at Wharton. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. We have a really interesting show. I just met our guest over in London, Trevor Greetham, who is head of multi-asset model solutions at Royal London Asset Management. We're going to get to Trevor in just a moment about his views on what's happening in the world and in how he structures portfolios. Professor, always great to get your views, particularly as there's volatility in the markets. There's a lot happening. Uh, We'll get your takes on the banking crisis, the Fed, inflation, all these issues. uh, But I'll I'll kick it over to you for for some opening comments here.
2: Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, last week, we kind of previewed this. Chris was on, um... And, you know, SVB, uh, you know, was happening um, and um, it's caused an awful lot of uh, ripple effects. Let, let me first give my prediction for for next week, barring a total collapse between now and next Wednesday, um, uh, I do think they're going to go 15, but with a, a statement that um basically uh, says that, uh, you know, we can afford to pause. Uh, they will never commit a pause. They'll never commit anything further uh, than what they just do. But uh, they hint at it in the statement. Now, the dot plots come out at 2 p.m. Uh, so Eastern, so uh, they may be more hawkish, because I don't know when these, these guys, FOMC members, will be turning in their dot plots. Some of them might have turned it in before last week. But... They may have a chance to revive it. So I have a feeling that the market may react negatively at two o'clock when it says, oh, my God, people still want to raise a lot of rates. And I think that maybe Powell then talk it down during the press conference uh, that follows. Um, I mean, I'm giving kind of very specific short-term dynamics here. We'll see if they turn out. Um, but uh, 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 I think uh, a zero rate, which is possible – you know if there's another you know well well another day like to, another two or three days like today another not a run on the bank but serious questions about the bank A zero is not impossible um if they really think that but it also gives the signal that they're worried very worried i mean to uh, stop completely against the inflation i i think more that they keep it toned down and and um and, and say that they're monitoring the situation uh, you know, it is my belief, and I, I stated, uh, you know, uh, last Friday, I, I think they should just uh, at this point uh, have a temporary insurance of all deposits everywhere until they sort it out. Uh, I think we need to reform the entire deposit system. That's not uh, for discussion today because it's 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 complicated. But this sort of leaving uh, you uncertain about are you safe and are you not is just foaming uh, a lot of uncertainty. Um the fallout, even if they do say we're basically insuring all the deposits, there's a ripple effect. I mean, banks are going to be reluctant to lend except on triple A quality. They're going to worry about the regulators, you know, looking down uh over their shoulders. Uh so that's equivalent to one or two tightenings just in terms of lending standards. Also the margins of banks could be very threatened. Um Uh, you know, banks are still giving, uh, you know, zero, one, at most 2% on their deposits while they're earning four and a half to five. And um, now when people are thinking of taking it out, they see how much they could earn. Is it coming back? What does that do to the lending system? So there's, you know, this definitely has um, ripple effects, Um, you know, that will squeeze the profit of banks. Although, you know, I, I do remind people that when the interest rates were zero, both for them and the depositors, they made money. So they were, you know, it's not that they have to have this is what looks like a bonus to them. They, they uh, basically uh, take advantage of, <laughs> of lazy people that don't move their money. Um, but, you know, they're still able to, to make money on, um, uh, on their loans. I mean, they did for, you know, since, uh, all the, you know, for seven or eight years following the financial crisis, I mean, we're at zero basically except for a one or two years, all the way until the pandemic from the financial crisis, and they made money. So they can make it with those margins uh, at a competitive uh, rate going um, uh, forward. As far as the stock market is concerned, I, I, I mean, uh, this puts a crimp in this year. Uh, earnings may not be realized, but I think they're very conservatively positioned in any case at 220 and might surprise us that they make it. Um, um, Is there going to be a recession? Uh, The data coming in, I mean, the real data this week, um, manufacturing is weak, but uh, housing starts were strong and the jobless claims fell below 200,000. Once again, um, uh, they kind of put up a little red warning flag um, last week, but now they fell back this week. Uh so I don't see anything yet but of course you wouldn't expect the fallout to something like this to happen right away. Uh we did get University of Michigan numbers they were very good on inflationary expectations. I mean so the the Fed definitely has moved uh, has uh, has uh, rationale to downshift. Powell can point to the University of Michigan downshift quite substantially in one year and even five-year inflation expectations. He can point to the producer price index. It came in well below expectations. And by the way, revised pre- previous months, which panicked the market, <laughs> if they knew what it was, the real data was, we wouldn't have had a panic a month ago. Um, uh, and we've already you know, talked about the fact that the consumer price index came in pretty much as expected, again, artificially inflated by the terrible housing statistics that are used in the consumer price index. Um, You know, as we um, have computed on wisdom tree, uh, actually core inflation has been negative. Is it, is it five consecutive months, uh, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, If you use that three month annualized figures,
2: three month annualized uh, rates and using current data on the case shower and current data on apartment lists and Zillow, uh, we really have negative inflation. Um, So, uh, you know, uh, the, uh they're beginning to get that story a story that we 've been telling for two years they're they've gotten it for about three months of those two years um but nonetheless um uh yeah it, it, it's it's it 's trying times. but it makes me actually more optimistic for twenty twenty four because this uh, what would be worse if they if they were hiking towards six and then the accident happened they realized how how tight they had been. I mean that could now that we signaled at this level and not getting to the higher levels actually gives me uh, more hope that 2024 is going to be in fact a a good year for earnings. Again, I want them to get that money supply growth back to the five percent level that's consistent with two percent inflation. Uh, as as we pointed out, the money supply has been shrinking over the last twelve months. Now we also have some. Problems of interpreting the money supply, because if people take their money out of buy, deposit now, some people say they're taking it out of and, and put it in treasuries. The problem is when you <laughs> – someone who's telling you the treasuries is you know taking the money, and they have to put it somewhere. <laughs> it's not like money disappears. That's one of the things. So you have to be very careful. But a shift away to banks, too well done. They include money market mutual funds in them, too. Maybe they should cl- include a couple other elements. Uh, in M2 that that are are money-like to make sure that they really get the shift that is uh, going on. Of course, Bitcoin is enjoying its biggest rally in years, and it is all because of the scenario. You know, we've told you the banks are terrible. The U.S. money system is terrible. Uh, It's all, you know, old, institutionally run with cracks in it, and they're getting a lot of the money. People are taking the money out and putting it in Bitcoin. No question. I'm not, you know, today, right now, it's up seven percent. I mean, I think it's up thirty percent year to date, uh, week to week to date. Um, uh, you know, you know, my feeling is once people feel that they're safe in the banks again, this will go back down. But in the meantime, it's certainly enjoying the backwind of their story. Uh That was put into hibernation for the the last uh you know six to nine months since uh Bitcoin has collapsed,
1: Trevor, I'm gonna to get to go with you for the remainder of the program, but any quick response to the professor you want to hop in with any of your views or questions for for the professor
0: okay. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. I got a I've got a question really because um over in London we had a bit of fun last uh, September October with a very very short-lived government. You might have uh, Yeah, oh definitely. Yeah, we were
2: following that. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> and we had
0: a we had a real problem with our pension funds and their liability driven investment where they were very leveraged and they basically had to sort of um sell assets of all kinds to try and meet the margin calls because gilt yields were rising so rapidly. Um one of the one of the discussions we've been having about Silicon Valley Bank and, and what's all going on in, in the US banking system is is this is this the LDI crisis? In other words is it a liquidity problem caused by losses on bonds, duration losses on bonds or or is it a financial crisis? I mean, the, the fact is not the loan books that's really triggering this, but the no. losses on the safe assets makes us wonder whether actually it could be dealt with quite quickly.
2: Yeah, and that is you know it's crazy that the um, it's it, the losses on the long-term Treasuries. I mean, Signature Bank violated Rule 1 of Banking 101, don't borrow short and lend long. Uh, they should have, if, if they if they put all that tremendous inflow they got over the last two years in Treasury bills, there's no story and there's no run. Now, you know, it's almost uh, like there's a crack in one bank, Peter Tile tweets, and everyone realized, just a minute, I'm only insured up to 250000 Um you know, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. This has never been a problem. And, uh, you know, you know, basically we need to reform. I'm mean, basically I think uh, all deposits, except those that are fraudulently uh, um, uh, uh, relayed, uh, um, conveyed I, I, the word, uh, uh, you know, when someone gives them a loan, gives them a you know million dollar deposit. At the bank and the loan is not on good collateral. That should not be paid off. But the, the bank examiners can find out exposed about whether that's happening. I think if you take your own money and put it in the bank, it should be insured. Uh, I think all payroll accounts should be insured. Um, and, and no one no one has the ability to look at the balance sheet. I do not think, you know, everyone talks about moral hazard. Well, the truth of the matter is, and I, I you know, if my if my memory serves me correct, uh, the FDIC has not lost a penny in 40 years, or or if it is, its losses have been extremely minor and more many times more made over by the fees on the banks. Now, let me also say what uh, it's sort of ridiculous. People are saying, oh, it's going to be on the if it isn't the taxpayer, it's going to be on you, the user of the bank. You know, they're talking about maybe a 10 basis point rise in fees. It it, it, it sort of amuses me that people are saying, oh my God, they're going to charge me 10 you know, my deposit, they're, they're already, you know, holding 1% deposits when the market rate is five. So they're suffering 400 basis points. And now they're worried <laughs> that the regulators are going to put, you know, five or 10 basis points on the insurance again. I mean, you know, that's, uh, that, you know, that's not, you know, that's, that's sort of crazy in and of itself. Sure. There will be reform and there'll probably be adjustments. Um, we definitely need to reform it. Um I uh, mean, you know, it's a fixed amount of time. It doesn't even keep up with inflation or or size of accounts, et cetera, and so on. But in the meantime, you just, uh, you know, given the Fed hiking cycle, in my opinion, you just have to de facto, as they did in the crisis. Don't forget, they even went farther in the crisis. They insured all money market mutual funds. They're not doing that yep. yet. There's no run on them. Um, uh, I think we agree
0: with you. I think we agree that um, this is a, this is a liquidity crisis. It could yeah. turn into a solvency crisis if the banks then pull in their horns and, and pull loans. And yeah, but if, well, they, if it, they have they, have, they only flight, would have to do that
2: if it if if people start taking their money out, and absolutely. they won't take their money out if they feel they're insured. So it's all <laughs> goes back. Yeah. I mean, you know, you only have to call loans when someone when they take your money their money out. You know, there's no other reason to call loans. So once you say, why are you taking your money out? There's no reason it's safe. And then period, you know, crisis ends.
1: The reason they take the out is because of the 5% interest you could earn. So that, that problem is not going away.
2: That problem is not going away. And they, they, uh, the, the banks are going to have to wake up to the fact that, you know, for 10 years, uh, everyone thought it was zero. And there and there's whole, there is a lot of dead money. Take a look. Take a look at mortgage refinancing. There there are pay, when mortgages were three percent, there were eight percent mortgages outstanding that were not refinanced. There is a lot of lazy money yeah. out there in the world. And, you know, uh, any institution that want, uh, tries, you know, it's certainly welcome to take advantage of it, <laughs> including the banks.
1: Hopefully, our listeners are not the lazy money, uh, but we don't want to create a bank run. But we want them to earn their deposits uh, and get the five percent that they're 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 uh, they should be getting. Any any closing questions or comments, Professor?
2: No, I, I think we covered it, and uh, you know I can't be on with Trevor. I'm going to be really interested. Well, I'll hear the podcast of it.
1: Well, this has uh, been a great, uh, great opening. Next week will be more fireworks, I'm sure, from the Fed and, and after. So, we'll look forward to get your take next week, Professor. Have a have a great uh, rest of the weekend.
2: Thank you. Nice you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Trevor. Let me come back to Trevor Greetham, who is the head of multi-asset solutions at Royal London Asset Management. Trevor, maybe you could tell our listeners here uh, in the U.S. but globally on 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 uh, the, the podcast what tell us a little bit about Royal. London Asset Management. What you do uh, and your role there?
0: Yeah, so, so Royal London is the UK's largest customer-owned life insurance company. So we're a, we're a mutual. So we don't have any shareholders, um, and uh, we uh, we have about two million pension customers in the UK. Um, and my team manages the assets who so are part of Royal London Asset Management, which is a global asset manager. Um, and uh, we're managing um, about uh, something like 100, 120 billion US dollars of insurance capital, plus our own funds as well.
1: So putting a lot of money to work, and uh, and and have a and so that your views on how you you allocate across portfolios, I think is going to be very interesting. Um, so let let, let maybe well, we can continue on to some of the stuff we started with the professor, but give us your view we're we're coming into the big fed meeting next week they're worried about inflation i've heard you have some views on the current inflation dynamics and and the challenges for the fed and and global central banks what do you think is is happening inflation how's that going to evolve how's that going to pressure central bank policy
0: yeah so um the way the way i sort of uh, look at what's happening in the world at the moment is we've moved into a much more inflation-prone era. That doesn't mean to say that inflation goes up to 7 or 8% and just stays at 7 or 8% because, of course, inflation is a year-on-year construct. What it means is you get these shocks where inflation goes up. And generally speaking, uh, central banks just let it happen. So let me give you an example. In the UK, we got to 11.5% inflation. Uh, like the Fed, the Bank of England has a 2% inflation target. So they got a, a, a bit wrong there. <laughs> uh, they overshot by 9.5%. What are they going to do the next year? Are they going to target an undershoot of 9.5%? So are they going to target an inflation rate of minus 7.5? No. They'd be very happy if inflation drops from 11.5% to 3 or 4 and maybe a year after it drops to 2 The price level increase still happened. You didn't imagine it. It still happened but it's been accommodated by the central banks. So even when you've got inflation targeting central banks, when there's one of these big shocks, they kind of let it happen. And the sorts of structural changes that, that led to the big inflation shock of the last year, many of them are still in place. But I would say, obviously, the, the, the smoking gun, if you like, for the inflation we've been suffering recently was mainly COVID. And I've got a, a huge sympathy with Larry Summers sort of way of describing the, the great lockdown as like a very long weekend the Monday morning, people got back to work, the economy's recovered. The problem was that on Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning and Friday morning, you still had zero interest rates, quantitative easing, fiscal stimulus absolutely awash everywhere. And so, so policymakers were very late to remove that emergency stimulus that was needed in early 2020, and you had a supply-constrained world economy. So that's where the inflation came from this time. But if you look around uh, the trends that gave us the disinflation, from 1980 onwards, really, Uh, things like globalization, the fall of the Iron Curtain, China joining the WTO. You've now got those things in reverse. You've got a very bad set of relationships now with China, lots of onshoring. You've got Brexit. Uh, You've got uh, deglobalization generally. You've also got um, a a very uh, constrained investment outlook for fossil fuels because of the path to net zero. So no major fossil fuel producer is building you know, new deep water oil rigs because in 30 years' time, they might not be selling any oil. Um, and so you're seeing, as a result of that, spikes in commodity prices like we saw in natural gas. Got very high debt levels, which gives governments an incentive to let inflation overshoot, demographics and geopolitics. There's a whole list of stuff which actually was good from 1980 to about 2020 and is now looking quite bad. So what we're saying is we're prone to more inflation shocks That probably means shorter business cycles. And it means wanting to have some kind of inflation hedge in your portfolio so you don't suffer the problem of 2022, where you lost money on your stocks and on your bonds at the same time.
1: So, yeah, I think we should go into this in in some greater detail. But let me, before we get into the specifics of what you do about it, so give us some views on the the structural inflation, how much higher, you know, if if the goals are two. Uh, and you think about these shocks or this spiky inflation shock. What? How? How do you see it going? If you have a time frame for how these inflation cycles work, and and how much higher we should expect, and and, and or is it just a shock? You don't know. It's going to just be variable. Mm.
0: Well, well, I did some some historical analysis here, and I looked back to um, the early 1900s. And if you look back, and I was using UK inflation data, but you could do the same and get very similar results with US inflation data. Um, And what I was looking at was periods where there was a rapid rise in the price level. And there were actually three of them since 1900. Two of them were the World Wars, and then there was the 1970s. And the first thing to say about those periods is that, again, inflation doesn't just go up and stay up, it spikes, and then it comes back down to zero with base effects, and then it spikes again later. So we've sort of termed the, uh, the name spikeflation. So you get this, these periods, and in those three periods I've identified, the World War I, World War II, and the 70s. In each case, the price level came out of that period, for five or 10 years, between two and four times higher. So a tremendous amount of inflation. Uh, there were spikes of above 20%, but in each case, the lows in those periods were 0 or 1% or 2% inflation. Um, so I think that's what we could be seeing here. We've seen the first spike. There could be more spikes. We don't know if they are, there are or not but those structural changes we were talking about make us think there'll be more spikes. But in the meantime, inflation is going to come down because of base effects, especially because of more than a year after the invasion of Ukraine. So the commodity price year-on-year effect is going to be very powerful. And I also think we're going into recessions, possibly quite nasty recessions, which will bring inflation down lower. So this kind of view on inflation, isn't that it, it will always be high, is that when we come out of the recession, we're probably going to end up you know easing too much and too late the way way monetary policy tends to work you hike too much and too late because of the the lags of policy and then you ease too much and too late and you've created a much more sort of boom bust economic cycle in the next big recovery you'll hit those same sort of glass ceilings of fossil fuel capacity for example and you'll get another inflation shock And i'm just saying make sure you're doing something about hedging inflation um, for when that comes around So let's go into that.
1: What are you doing? You oversee these big multi-asset solution portfolios. You have to allocate across all that capital that you mentioned. What what are some of the ways you've thought about hedging inflation risk?
0: Yeah, Um, well, there are three things we're doing. Um, The first is that, uh, well, they all come under the category, really, of broader diversification than just stocks and bonds. Um, So, for example, uh, within our multi-asset portfolios, we include commercial real estate. Now, that's not recession-proof, but it does have a link to inflation through rents. So it's another long-term real asset like stocks. Uh, we, Within our equity portfolios, we um, don't believe in the market cap- capitalization approach. that tends to give you a very big exposure to very expensive growth stocks, particularly in the U.S. So we have a, an extra allocation to the, the UK market, and that's partly home bias. We're a UK insurance company, but the UK stock market also is much more inflation resilient. If you look at prior inflationary periods, it tends to perform as well during rising inflation as falling inflation, and that's partly the fact that it's like a value stock. It's got a lot of resource and um, consumer um, uh, sort of consumer cyclical exposure and financials, and they tend to do better in rising inflation. And then we include commodities. And, uh, you know, I've been including commodities in my funds um, at Fidelity and at Royal London since I left Merrill Lynch, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and the commodities have a particular stage of the business cycle when they do well. So tactically, it's great to have them as a, as a lever you can use. But they also do very well during these inflation spikes. So, for example, last year, when in terms of U.S. dollar terms, stocks were down 15 to 20%. Treasuries were down 15 to 20 percent. Commodities were up 20 percent plus. Um, there's a scatter plot that's been doing the rounds that a, a large passive a US asset manager, which I won't name, has been using to kind of to sort of try and get you to forget 2022 because the big passive funds they've had a huge exposure, obviously, to the US growth sectors um, and and long duration treasuries. And the scatter plot again, really long term. This it goes back to 1928. And it shows the year-on-year return for the S&P 500, and it shows the year-on-year return for the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond. And what you find is that in that scatter plot, the bottom left-hand corner, which is when you've got negative returns for both stocks and bonds, is almost empty. Um, Of of the sort of uh, almost 100 years, there are four years in the bottom left-hand corner, and only one of them's really deep in that bottom left-hand corner, and it was last year. And the argument there is, yeah, forget it. You know, it's an act of God. So once in a century event, just just enjoy. Come back um, to the sixty you know, 40 you'll be, you'll be fine with us. Back to the 60 40. yeah, absolutely. You'll be fine. Just forget about last year. And Anyway, bond yields are higher now, so that's all fine. Um, the problem with that scatterplot is it's in nominal terms. And, and the whole key to this, I think, is to think about inflation just as much as you think about growth. And if you adjust those, those dots on the scatterplot by subtracting inflation, So you look at it in real terms. This is, again, a U.S. dollar scatter plot, and I've taken off U.S. CPI. Suddenly, the bottom left-hand corner isn't quite so empty. You've got 14 different years in the bottom left-hand corner and they're all recognizably inflation shocks uh, like the 70s, uh, 1994 is in there. There's a whole bunch of the late 80s are in there. Um, And so if you are thinking there could be more of these inflation shocks, there's a whole stage of the business cycle you're not really protected from if you don't have something like commodities in the portfolio we don't go mad about it and we have a five percent allocation across most of our portfolios to commodities and we can flex that tactically you know in the north to 10 percent range but having that in there is really helpful last year
1: and is that true that five percent true across if you're mostly you know geared towards an 80 20 equities as well as a 2080 bonds uh, is that also true or do you how do you think about the different risk profiles
0: we we do the same across the whole, risk profiles. So, we have a very similar system to, to, to you in the U.S. Um, so, we have risk profiles going all the way from something that's um, 75% fixed income to 100% equity, and all of them have 5% commodities in them.
1: Very interesting.
0: Um, and yeah, what is really particularly interesting at the lower end of the range, because those defensive funds, um, we have a, an active approach to the way we blend the asset classes, as well as the day-to-day management. So, um, we had a pretty low exposure to bond duration anyway, because when bond yields were close to zero and there were inflation risks in the in the post-COVID recovery, you know, why have a big strategic allocation to long-duration bonds? So we had quite low bond duration and we had the commodities in there. And so those funds, uh, you know, they hardly dropped in 2022. They were down in low single-digit percentage drops in sterling terms, whereas some of the other sterling uh, low-risk passive funds were down 25%. Um, so it made a huge difference, I think. And you know, I kind of think if you've got something that's predominantly in bonds, having commodities in there is a brilliant hedge, because you know it's the primary thing, risk. It's like the kryptonite for bond markets. You know, yeah, a bit of that.
1: Very interesting. Uh, and 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 uh, Royal London, it's got to be happy they brought you on to help lead that team and bring in the commodities piece. Is there a type of commodities you think? is particularly relevant in in today's market uh, in in, in this gold has been trading like a bond in many ways you've got the other sort of oil that you talked about in terms of lack of investment but is it just a broad-based commodity exposure do you think through what you want or do you get tactical at all in that
0: it's a good question i mean our our benchmark for the commodity part of the fund is the bloomberg commodity index and that's broadly one-third energy one-third agriculture and one-third metals um, the metals obviously include gold. Um, we, we kind of want something that gives us an inflation hedge. And I think gold on its own possibly doesn't, because the way I think of gold, it's almost like it's a currency. You know, it, it tends to do well when the dollar is weak. It tends to do well when when real interest rates are dropping. It does well in a systemic crisis that doesn't always help copper. Um, so it's a kind of special sort of commodity, really. Uh, and the, the consumer inflation protection has got to have some of the energy basket and agriculture basket in there. Um so we tend to, to to use the sort of broad Bloomberg commodity exposure um We have got tactical at times, so there are times when we, we've we 've held gold separately and it 's something we 're looking into doing a bit more of in future um, We had gold earlier in the year and, and unfortunately, we sold it the week before s v b went belly up. <laughs> it would have been quite handy to keep it in the portfolio but um i think i think in the in the coming recession, I'd still things out there. If you end up with a situation where the Fed is cutting rates and the dollar is weak, I think gold will be useful to have, and it will behave differently from the broad basket of commodities.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting to think through the dynamics of all that in the U.S. People, Europe, the, everybody uses the Bloomberg Commodity Index is probably like the biggest standard in the U.S. You feel like the, the, at least the big ETFs tend to track well the the GSCI from Goldman, which is very energy heavy, and and some of the mm. the other there's some others that are they tend to be very overly energy risk like when i did some studies like 80 yeah, yeah. percent of the risk was from energy versus in, in... Yeah,
0: absolutely and that makes us uncomfortable but also in europe it's not it's not permitted so in the, the retail funds the usage the funds they're called there are there are special diversification rules for an index you might use uh, derivatives on and and the, the, the gsci fails it because of the heavy energy weight so they're more diversified but in terms of you know the Behavior, the correlation—whether uh, you use Bloomberg or GSEI—got something very, very similar out of it.
1: Yeah, Trevor, we we talked a little bit about the the Fed and the interest rates and the cycles here. Uh, how are you thinking through navigating this environment? Is that we've been saying on the show the Fed's too tight uh, that they're going over far? How, how do you view where we are in the economic cycle? how ties the central bank policy going forward?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, the way I think about central banks, I like the analogy of uh, driving a car. And, you know, you look out the window, you look at the dials, so you're going too fast, you tap the brake, um, you wait a bit, you look out the window, you look at the dials, you tap the brake again. It's exactly the same as that, except the brake doesn't take effect immediately, it takes effect in, in 12 to 18 months. It's an almost impossible job to get right. Um And that's why, you know, you go back to the 1860s and you look at the uh, NBER data, the average business cycle is less than five years, and that's 18 months of recession, and then about three years of recovery before another 18 months of recession, and it's not great. And I think the reason we've had such long business cycles since the 80s is this period of very low inflation, where any sign of weakness, because inflation wasn't a concern, you could just tap, tap on the accelerator. And now we're in a situation where inflation is much more spiky. You're going to get central banks having to get involved much more often. And it's a horrible job to do. And by the time they know for sure they've done enough, they've done too much. And that's what creates the business cycle. So when, you know, when a pivot comes, I think it will be quite a dramatic pivot. And they will end up cutting rates. And they'll end up cutting rates too much. And you know, once you've got this instability, it's hard to get rid of it again. And I think COVID, you can think of it as like you know, you've had a very smooth lake, And you just chucked an enormous rock in it and and the ripples will, will go on for some time. So I think this is going to be, you know, quite a short business cycle. There'll be a recession, there'll be a recovery, there'll probably be another spike in inflation. It all happens all over again. And and, and and that's it's, normal, by the way. <laughs> that's how it's meant to be.
1: The last four decades have not been normal. We're getting back to the old normal, not normal the new. Not, not the new normal. The old normal. It's interesting. Um, so, what do you do from an investment point? We talked a little bit about commodities and the role of things besides stocks or bonds. But how, how, when you think about this, cl- this cl- you've called it for sort an of investment clock of how uh, yeah. things move in a cycle. How, how, what does this mean for you?
0: Yeah. So, so I've been working on, on ways of relating asset allocation to the business cycle since the mid-90s. And we, I call this thing the investment clock. If you can imagine a clock face, um, but rather than having sort of times written around the face of the clock, uh, the way you can tell the time on the clock is you've got two dimensions to think about. Your, your vertical dimension is growth, and your horizontal dimension is inflation. Um, And because the growth cycle and the inflation cycle are kind of out of phase with each other, you know, growth comes first and then later on inflation rises and then growth slows down and it takes a while usually before inflation comes down. Um, You create this sort of circular motion. If you're plotting them in two dimensions, you go around clockwise. Um, And uh, the the four different asset classes that that link to different stages of the business cycle, first of all, government bonds, when you've got a slowdown with falling inflation, which is what I think we're about to head into. So government bonds could do really well over the next year or two. When you cut rates enough to get a recovery going, but you have still got spare capacity and and falling inflation, that's when stocks do best because you've then got very low interest rates, you have still got rate cuts, you've got the big earnings recovery as you go into the economic upturn. Commodities have their own corner of the clock, which is why you know talking earlier on i mentioned they have a really useful tactical role because when you've got a strong economy with rising inflation um, bonds are doing badly stocks are often doing badly commodities are always doing well and then finally you get stagflation which i used to have to explain to people but nowadays they all know what it is and stagflation is 2022 that's when you've got a slowdown, but inflation still rising and commodities have historically done very well during that stage of the cycle too but it's a time when cash is a useful asset class. I mean, we'd say more reliably in stagflation, you want to be defensive out of stocks, out of bonds in cash, which last year would have been pretty good. And what we do is we track growth and inflation indicators every month to work out where we are in that clock. Um, and all of last year, we were in stagflation. Um, over the last three or four months, the inflation indicators have dropped dramatically. And that means we've moved from stagflation around to what I call reflation, uh, which is where bonds are doing better and central banks should actually be thinking about easing. And then this year, rather surprisingly, we didn't expect to see this. We've actually seen the growth indicators improving as well with a lot of the business surveys perking up. Things like the ISM services was very strong, obviously the payroll numbers, all of the European purchasing managers and in- indices surveys, they were stronger. Um, and it looks like actually we were going into a disinflationary recovery and then bang, Silicon Valley Bank um, blew up. Um, we've we've been a bit skeptical about the recovery this year because uh, we've had such a significant tightening from central banks that we are expecting recessions. And the central banks want recessions. And if anything, this year, good news has been bad news because, you know, it's resulted in bond yields rising again and people starting to talk up the, the risk of 50s from the Fed. And arguably, it was this reacceleration of interest rate expectations that pushed these banks over the edge. They thought they got through the worst of it on their bond portfolios, and then suddenly yields started rising again. Um, so what will the Fed do? Um, I think this financial instability, they have to think about very carefully, but there's a real trade-off coming between financial instability and price stability. And if they blink too soon, if they cut rates, if they can't take the pain that they probably need to inflict, then... Inflation won't drop as much as it should. And the risk is that you get, you know, a a bigger problem further on.
1: Uh, There's a lot lot to go into and all these points. Um, In terms of you, you you talked with the professor, your opening question to the professor was on tying this current situation to what you experienced in London through the LDI crisis. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe you could share... Uh your view a little bit of what happened in the LDI for people. We actually had right. a show on the LDI situation if people want to check behind the markets. Uh historically we had a, a pretty interesting discussion uh with one of the largest buyers of, of uh of those inflation protected guilts. That was an interesting discussion. Um but what what's your sense from that situation? How where it was then, where it is now, uh and,
0: and any of the fallout from that. Yeah. Okay. So 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 there are two aspects here. One is the change of government that happened last late summer. Um, well, it's a change of government, same government, new prime minister, uh, when Liz Truss became prime minister and Boris Johnson has left in disgrace. Uh, so we had a new prime minister who came in with some um, quite extreme um, economically liberal ideas, um, a big believer in the Laffer curve, all this sort of thing, and, and decided it would be a great time Just to say to the Office for Budget Responsibility, which is like the the sort of CBO, we don't really need you. Um, You can give us a report if you like, but maybe December, maybe never. Uh, We're going to slash taxes because it will unleash animal spirits. um, And we're going to deregulate massively and just to see what happens. And this was tone deaf because it happened towards the end of a generational crash in bonds that we've all been suffering. And then suddenly this new government came in and threw away the book and said they're just going to slash taxes and, and go for go for growth. I mean, it was it was tone deaf because bond markets were very fragile anyway. And it was tone deaf because the Bank of England was trying to raise rates to, to rein in 11% inflation. And so back to the car analogy, the Bank of England's trying to tap the brake and suddenly the government came in and slammed effort on the accelerator. Uh, and that caused all sorts of chaos, massive volatility in guilt yields. Um, and um, caught in the crosshairs of this was a highly leveraged, Pension fund industry, where the pension funds were very solvent because um, their liabilities are very bond like, and bonds had crashed and stocks had done okay in the UK because the pound had been weak and we didn't have as bad a bear market as you had. Um, So the pension funds were solvent, but suddenly they had all of these liability hedges, which are long dated swaps uh, on interest rates, which were going badly out of the money, and they had to find the cash to meet the margin calls, and their, their assets were too illiquid. So they were dumping stocks, they were dumping property, dumping absolutely anything. And and that, that September panic was a global panic because the pension funds in the UK are quite big and they were all just selling. Um, and that's what happened. And and, and there, was a, there was a change of government and the yields have come back down again. And I, I like to think I played a little part in uh, events there because I was um, at the worst point of it. I was interviewed on, on Radio 4. This was the main sort of uh, radio station over here, BBC Radio 4. Uh, It was a live interview, and I was asked – I didn't expect this question – I was asked whether the City of London had confidence in the Chancellor of the Exchequer, so our Treasury Minister, and there was the longest pause you've ever heard on radio. (laughs) And I I finally said, "Um, we were quite surprised about what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the similarities with with now are that that was a a problem caused by rising government bond yields – and it was a problem caused by effectively uh, mismatched asset liability um, owners of those government bonds that had to sell other stuff. And it's very similar, actually, to the, the plight of some of these banks that, that put their deposits into treasuries and are losing money on the treasuries. It's not the same as household. If you go back to 2007, and I was at, at Merrill Lynch at the time, uh, in 2007, the household um, failure, which was the subprime lending division that was bought by um, Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, HSBC, they had a profit warning in February 07 and it was their loan book which was the problem. Um, SVB is not the loan book. The loan book's fine. It's, it's the, the bond portfolio. So you can make the case, this is more like a mini-budget, liability-driven investment fiasco, where there's a problem that the central banks can provide the liquidity for, and if they can get the, the bank runs under control, it's a liquidity problem, not a credit problem. And then I think you can see stock markets recover into the summer. Um, what we don't know is whether actually, as the professor was saying at the beginning of the, of the conversation, what we don't know is if this bank run uh, carries on long enough for uh, other banks to start withdrawing their credit. We start to see the senior loan officer survey go north and suddenly you've got a, you've got a real tightening. Yeah. So something that starts off as a liquidity problem could turn into a Minsky moment where it becomes an economic problem. But at the moment, it feels more like LDI than Lehman.
1: And, and you had the same comments at, from the central bank. is they, they came out to try to, they were trying to do all this tightening, and they just announced all this tightening, mm-hmm. and then they came in and quote-unquote reverse. but they were trying to provide liquidity that was viewed... They very- did
0: both. See, the thing, they can do that. They're, people don't believe it can happen, but central banks think about liquidity and inflation separately. And they were actually buying gilts to bring gilt yields down. They were promising to cap gilt yields, um, the announcement actually came out like, you know, in, unexpectedly in the middle of a, a, a bond auction. There was a government bond auction. And in the middle of it, suddenly this big announcement came out when you knew something was really badly wrong for the for the Bank of England to interrupt a, a government bond auction. But they capped gilt yields using their liquidity provision. So if you like, they reversed QT back into QE and they bought these, these gilts and then they hiked rates anyway. Right. So they kept hiking rates anyway. The ECB, you know, yesterday depending on listening to this, um, the European Central Bank uh, said, oh, yeah, we're really worried about Credit Suisse, but we're hiking interest rates 50 basis points. Um, they, will, they will do their liquidity provision separately from their inflation fighting. And the question is how long that can carry on and whether in the end, you know, you, you have to sacrifice either financial stability or price stability.
1: What do you think about that gilt market today? Where are the yields? I mean, they—they you they started the where it was sort of crazy. I mean, you had these sharply negative inflation-adjusted bond yields, and then they went to positive territory. Where are they today? How do they compare to U.S. bond, you know, tips yields? Um, and and, and some of the that that I'm sure is part of how one of the things you can hedge inflation through the bond market. Where, where are those yields? That are they attractive?
0: Um, the, the real yields are positive. They were very sharply negative. Um. So um, same happened with TIPS, but it happened more so with the long-dated um, index-linked gilts. Um, they're not a great way of hedging inflation because they, they come with enormous duration. You know, and and uh, back to the conversation earlier on about uh, the, the central banks and what's their inflation target and what do we think inflation will actually be, um, the bond markets have never really believed 2% is deliverable. So if you look at the break-even inflation rate implied by the index-linked gilts, Compared to conventional gilts, it's 3 or 4%. So the markets are factoring in 3 or 4% inflation, not 2 um, And that moves around a little bit. But the main problem with index-linked gills, you think, I'm worried about inflation, I'll buy index-linked gilts? The main problem is that that stage of the business cycle, the overheat in the investment clock, where growth is strong and inflation is rising and the central bank's hiking rates. Yeah, I mean, the break-even inflation might widen a bit, but you might lose 30% on the the investment because of the rise in in real yields that's going on. So, you know, interesting guilts gilts are very long duration. They, having commodities is a much more immediate zero-duration hedge for inflation.
1: That, that is all very interesting, uh, and there's a huge surge of, of inflows to TIPS um, for that, and uh, and and I, we, we've made a lot of the same comments about how it's tricky that, that people really understand those that TIPS element, that duration element, very interesting. So let's come back to, as you think about putting this all together for these solutions, uh, you talked a little bit about the, the clock and what it means for equities and bonds today. Yeah. Um, but in in some of your tactical views, is you, uh, you have some strategic allocation to stocks, but how, how are you viewing that generally today, stocks versus bonds mm-hmm. and, and what it means? Well,
0: well, during the panic last September, october in the uk we we went from underweight stocks where we'd been all year to overweight stocks we had this rally um we were still overweight stocks last week when when the uh, the banking problem started so that's been a little bit painful for us um what we're kind of mulling over again is is this is this a short-term liquidity problem where we end up buying the dip or is this the sign that this 12, 18 months of interest rate rises are starting to take effect and it broadens out into an economic problem? And it will take weeks before we know. The macro data we're seeing now is stale. It's it's from before. We'll have to wait to see um, things like the quarterly senior loan officer survey in April. We'll need to see a lot of the, the data. So I think the markets will stay choppy for a while. Um, they could end up going to new highs if if this is something that the central banks control through their liquidity provision, which is exactly what happened with the LDI crisis. It did blow over. But if it does blow over, maybe it's June, maybe it's August, maybe it's September. It feels to us at some point, the central banks will turn the business cycle down. And then the interesting um, and perhaps slightly gloomy thought there is if you look at the performance of stocks versus bonds globally, it very much follows the business cycle. And uh, if unemployment's rising, Stocks usually underperform bonds. And the prior times when central banks had to step in and fight inflation, um, the the underperformance lasted anything between one and four years. So we haven't seen that yet. Last year was the bear market caused by rising bond yields, but we haven't yet seen the bit of the bear market caused by recessions, caused by earnings weakness. Um, so we think it could be a year or two years from now before stocks start outperforming bonds again. And it feels like we're at the peak of that cycle, not the trough.
1: Getting close, so and and you meant is uh, the 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 path for the Fed? We've talked about perhaps they do this twenty five, they pause, and then Siegel has said they could be cutting as soon as June. He, that's what he thinks they should be doing. Then there's what will they do? But will the data get weak enough for the for that cycle? How how off is is Siegel's call there in in your in your mind?
0: Well, well, the data you know so far has been very strong. So as I mentioned earlier, the business surveys have been getting stronger. The payroll numbers have been very strong. Um, we've seen very low unemployment claims. Um, and around the world, you've generally seen an improvement in confidence. It will get rattled for sure by this. So we will see some worse data and some, some weaker surveys. But it's a hard one to call. But I think when we get to that sort of um, that, that turning point in the economy, um, the, one of the mechanisms for Fed rate hikes to take effect is through the financial system. You, know, you probably will get enough disquiet. That you will not see a very long, high plateau of rates, which some people have been talking about. I think when, when the economy starts weakening and when unemployment starts rising, it tends to happen in a pretty brutal, quick way. You know, six or nine months later, all of the rise in unemployment's done. And when that starts to happen, I think, you know, you'll know it when you see it and the Fed won't hang around. They will have to start easing
1: you you talked a bit about US versus UK and sort of the US is sort of this expensive growth UK is sort of value mm. is there yeah. uh, is the european market something uh in our final thoughts something that you think about being this value to it that's attractive or how do you think about sort of global equities because you made some comments about the US being expensive
0: yeah we we tend to think more in terms of the the UK is our value stock. The US is our kind of growth stock and the emerging markets have got the dynamic of their own. And the emerging markets could end up being quite defensive in, in, in the next few years because China's got a very different business cycle to the rest of us. They didn't have the great lockdown. They've been stimulating. They've been reopening recently. So China could be recovering. The Fed could be cutting rates which gives you a weak dollar. And that combination of a strong Chinese economy and a weak dollar could be good for emerging markets. So that's my my sort of thought that, you know, it could be that emerging markets end up being the defensive place to be the next few years. You don't hear that. You
1: you think of them as being this cyclical, you think of China risk, there's geopolitics out of China. That's a, an interesting teaser. We're not going to have a lot of time to go into that. And, and the rest of Europe outside of the UK? Any 30-second comments on that?
0: Well, you think it would be underperforming in this crisis, and everyone would think it would be because of some of the... Well, credit Suisse has been a problem for ages, but it's not it's not really underperforming. So it's another... It's another value-ish kind of market, really. So at the moment, we're overweight UK and European stocks. We're underweight US stocks.
1: And and does the war get resolved this year? Uh,
0: We've got 30 seconds left, haven't we? Um, I think it's a frozen conflict in the end, like North Korea, South Korea. I, I don't think it will get resolved for a long time. Well, this is all very
1: interesting, uh, and this has been a fantastic conversation. We'll be talking with Trevor Greedham, who's the head of multi-asset solutions at Royal London Asset Management. Talked about the insurance company being a mutual insurance. It's just been such a fantastic conversation, Trevor, on how you think about building portfolios and the current dynamics. We appreciate you spending so much time with us here on Behind the Markets been a pleasure. Thank you for being such a good host. Well, that's been great. Uh, I'd like to th- thank our producer here in the studio, Chris Tukes, on the soundboard, Matt Datz, our, our, our general producer, and Jeremy Schwartz. You list, listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz.